0: Let's pray together. Father, we want to be faithful as Your people. We want to bear witness to the truth. We want our lives to matter. So, Lord, we need You. Um, We are not sufficient for any of the things that You've called us to, but You've made us sufficient through Christ, who is everything to us. Lord, would You put, us, put it in us to love Him, to cherish Him, to exalt Him above all. Lord, would You make it that the way that we think and speak about the issues that we're going to talk about this morning, would You make it that we would think and speak in ways that honor You and that are infectious and that draw people in and that don't push them away. So help us, Lord. We pray that you would open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. And establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we ask you to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the centuries, it has become clear that sometimes the church's deepest commitments are often clarified and expressed in the midst of its greatest crises. Time and again throughout history, assaults on the faith have led to clarifications of our faith. And sometimes the challenges become so acute and so fundamental that faithfulness to Christ requires explicit declaration of biblical conviction in the face of error. In his own time, Dietrich Bonhoeffer believed that the church in Germany was in that kind of position. And there was one author who described his situation this way. She wrote this, Dietrich Bonhoeffer declared a state of status confessionis. I want you to mark that phrase, status confessionis. She goes on. Dietrich Bonhoeffer declared a state of status confessionis for the church under Nazi Germany. Status confessionis, literally a state of confessing, is a dire situation in which the church must stand up for the integrity of the gospel and the authority of the God it confesses. For Bonhoeffer and others, the Nazification of the church was an issue so threatening to the veracity of their confession of Christ that no dissimulation or concession was possible. Bonhoeffer recognized that the Nazi persecution of the Jews demanded a serious response from the church, but more so, he recognized that the church was called not only to bandage the victims under the wheel, but to jam a spoke into the wheel itself and bring the engine of injustice to a halt. Confessing Christ was a theology that could not be held without obligation, end quote. When we think about the situation that Bonhoeffer was in, and the situation that you and I are facing right now in the wake of the sexual revolution in our own culture, I ask you the question, is our situation any less dire? Now, to be sure, we're not facing anything like uh, a violent Nazi Germany in our moment. But that doesn't mean that we aren't facing a real dire threat to the church's integrity and witness in our culture. And the threat we face is not due merely to influences from outside the church, even within the evangelical movement we are not all on the same page when it comes to issues of sexuality and gender. You know, In 2015, one of the um, earliest evangelical books written on the topic of gender identity, or what we sometimes call tran- uh, transgenderism, and it was a, uh, the book was titled Understanding Gender Dysphoria, and the author of that book wrote the cover story for Christianity Today when the whole Bruce Jenner thing happened back in 2015. Do you remember that? With Caitlyn Jenner, Bruce becoming Caitlyn. Um, This book was reviewed by um, the Gospel Coalition as a step forward in Christian engagement on gender issues. And yet, when you read the book, it says that if you have a gender-confused child, sometimes cross-dressing that child would be the best prescription for him. For adults dealing with transgender feelings, this book argues that sex change surgery might be the best prescription for certain people in that situation. And this was in a book by an author writing and leading evangelical publications. These ideas are being sold inside churches and finding their way into congregation after congregation. And brothers and sisters, what I want to suggest to you this morning is that if Christians are unable to discern that surgi- surgeries destroying healthy organs are out of step with the gospel, then we are indeed of a state of confession. We're in a status confessionis right now. So the title of my message today is, what does the Bible say about Gender identity. That's, that's what we're going to talk about this morning, and we're going to be looking at the whole issue of transgenderism. So I needed to define a couple of terms before we jump into the Scripture and into the main part of the message here. The, f- the first term is that term transgender. Transgender is a catch-all term that refers to the many ways that people might perceive their own sense of their maleness or femaleness to be out of sync with what's otherwise revealed through their biological sex. Until recently, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, sometimes called the DSM, uh, had classified this experience as gender identity disorder. It was classified as a disorder. About 11 years ago, 2013, the DSM removed this experience from its list of disorders and replaced it with a new term, not gender identity disorder, but gender dysphoria. How many of you have heard that term before, gender dysphoria? Okay. And they did this in part to remove the the stigma from the transgender experience. Didn't want to have to say that it was, you know, a psychological disorder necessarily. Instead, the DSM is just focusing on those who experience dysphoria. Dysphoria is like the opposite of euphoria. If euphoria is a good feeling, dysphoria is a bad feeling. It's mental distress. And so anybody that has this misalignment between what they feel about themselves and what their body says. That's not necessarily the the big problem. The problem is if they feel bad about it and to help them to feel better about it or to reconcile themselves to this in some way. And so what I want to do for the rest of my time is to outline how the Bible teaches us about these things. And in particular, what the Bible teaches us about the distinction between male and female. In the moment that you and I are living in, the transgender moment that you and I are facing today, where everybody's confused about so-called gender identity, that's another term. Gender identity is a person's sense of their own maleness or femaleness, quite apart from whether, what their body says. Um, the, the, the moment that you and I are facing right now is going to require of us to confess what have, we've, the church has always believed, but previously has just sort of been assumed. We're having to articulate in the face of a challenge what things that we all assumed earlier. And now we have to bring those assumptions to the top so that we can see what the Bible actually says about these things. And the key issue for us is what does the Bible teach about being male and female? And so what I want to talk about this morning is what the Bible teaches every faithful Christian must believe about the distinction between male and female. And so I've got three points here. It's going to be very simple. And so this is what the Bible teaches. The distinction between male and female is biological. The distinction between male and female is social. And the distinction between male and female is good. So that's where we're going. The distinction is biological, it's social, and it's good. So the first thing is the distinction between male and female is biological. I want you to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to take a a look at Genesis 1, 26 through 28. These verses are very familiar, but I want to draw out some particular strands that are relevant for the topic we're addressing this morning. Verse 26 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image... According to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, notice in verse 26 that the accent is on what the man and the woman have in common. It says that they are both created in the image of God, and they are both given the responsibility to rule over God's good creation. So God is appointing them to be like his vice regents, ruling on his behalf over the world that he has made. And In part, this is a feature of their image bearing. God is a ruler. This male and female are now going to rule, and they're going to be imaging forth God as they do this. But in verse 27, there is an accent on difference. It says that God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Here we find out that these two divine image bearers come in two distinct genres, male and female, and it's right here at this point that the biblical revelation is standing in direct contrast to the aims and purposes of the transgender moment that you and I find ourselves in. What do I mean by that? Well, it's not like there's a big controversy today, at least at the popular level, about there being a difference between male and female. The controversy today is really about how to define that difference. What makes male and female different? Is it a biological thing? Is it a self-concept? Or is it something else altogether? Some years ago, I received a letter from the parents of a transgender child. These parents uh, wrote to me and told me they had a son who had grown up with gender-conflicted feelings. And as an adult, their son nevertheless got married to a woman. He had children with uh, this woman. And after being married for a number of years, he decided to end his marriage and to transition his appearance to that of a female. And eventually, he, went, he underwent um, what people call a sex change surgery. Uh, they're moving away from that terminology now. Um, they're trying to call it gender affirmation surgery, but sex change surgery, yeah, you know there's no such thing as a sex change surgery. You can't change your sex. You can have a surgery to try to make you look like something else, but you, you don't become that. You don't become fertile as the opposite sex. You can't. That's impossible. You can't change your, your sex. But he went through this so-called sex change surgery. And the parents told me they were writing to me as Christians. And they told me that as Christians, they support the, trans- the transition in the surgery that their son underwent because they believed that their son's transgender identity was the result of his brain sex being mismatched from his biological sex. They believed that his mind had always been female, even though his body has always been male. And because the brain is the most important uh, determiner of whether or not you're male or female, they believe he was simply born with the wrong reproductive anatomy. And they claim that Scripture was silent about the biological factors that distinguish male from female, and there's no scriptural authority for prioritizing a a person's reproductive anatomy over their brain structures when determining male and female. That's what they said to me. And so they felt that their child's body needed to be transformed through surgery so that it would match his mind. And so they supported, even from what they said was a Christian point of view, they supported their child's gender reassignment surgery or so-called sex change surgery, even though it cost him his marriage and his family. Now, these parents have bought into what psychologists call a brain sex theory of sexual development. The brain sex theory says that our brains script us towards male or female behaviors and dispositions. But sometimes our brain's gender doesn't match up to that of our biological sex. When that's the case, proponents of brain sex theory, and it is just a theory, it's not, you know, proven or anything. But the once you say this... Um, uh, they believe that what a person thinks about him or herself should trump what is otherwise revealed in the reproductive anatomy. And so that's why these parents wrote to me saying, and this is a quote from their, their letter, they said, you have chosen without any scriptural authority that I can find to prioritize genital anatomy over brain structure and function in determining sex and gender, end quote. They were challenging me on the grounds of scriptural authority that I had misconstrued what male and female are. And this is the claim that you are hearing more and more in popular culture today. People in our churches are hearing this too. They are being told that brain structures determine a person's sex and gender so that what a person thinks about themselves is what they are, no matter what their reproductive anatomy may otherwise say. Many Christians, sadly, are starting to believe this and are falling into this. But I want you to notice what Genesis 1 says in verse 28. Look at verse 28. It says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Now, you tell me, what do the terms male and female from verse 27 mean? In light of verse 28, God says to the male and female in verse 28, be fruitful and multiply. And you know what that means. It's the creation mandate, it requires procreation within the covenant of marriage. You tell me, is God using the terms male and female to refer to brain structures? Or is He using the terms male and female to refer to the differences in the reproductive systems of the man and the woman? You know the answer to this question. We don't procreate with our brains. The fundamental distinction between a male and a female is the organism's organiza- organization for sexual reproduction. And that only can happen in one of two ways. Your body is either organized to reproduce as a father, or it's organized to reproduce as a mother. There are no in between ways. That's it. And male or female are designated. That way in Genesis, which means this is what God is revealing about male and female. That's what's reflected in nature. It's certainly what's reflected in Scripture here in Genesis 1. Now, that means that if a person's body says male, but the person's brain is saying female, the brain is wrong. In a fallen world where sin has affected everything, even the way we think about ourselves... Sometimes what we think about ourselves is mistaken. And that certainly is the case with the transgender experience. The distinction between male and female is, first of all, biological. And the biological distinction in view has to do with the body's organization for reproduction. Quite apart from any consideration of brain structures, whatever those may be. Now, if this is true, and it is because it's what the Bible says... If this is true, then there are massive implications for how you're supposed to minister the gospel to people dealing with gender-confused feelings. It means that you can tell them on the authority of God's word that their body isn't lying to them. A person's maleness or femaleness isn't socially constructed or self-constructed like we talked about in the last hour. It's God-constructed. Sex is not something that's assigned at birth. It's something that's revealed by God in his special distinct design of male and female bodies. Go read Nancy's book, Love Thy Body. It's a wonderful exposition of this. The world is telling gender-confused people that if they perceive themselves to have a self-perception or a gender identity that's at odds with their bodily identity, then the mind takes precedence over the body. And the world is telling them to take steps to conform the body to the gender-confused mind rather than conforming the gender-confused mind to the healthy body. And if that means dressing the body in clothing associated with the opposite sex, so be it. If that means reshaping the body through surgeries... And the destruction of healthy body parts, so be it. The fallen mind trumps the creator's design of the body. And what God has revealed about maleness and femaleness through the body can and must be set aside. That's what the world is saying today. But this is the message that if you're going to be a faithful Christian bearing witness in this culture, that's the message that we have to be prepared to resist. By pointing people to Scripture, pointing them to nature, both of which are teaching that the distinction between male and female is biological according to the body's organization for reproduction. So that's the first thing. And if you don't get anything else, you've got to take this. The distinction between male and female is biological. The second thing is this. The distinction between male and female is social. Everybody turn a page and look at Genesis chapter 2. And I want you to look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, Isha, because she was taken out of man, Ish. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, whereas today, basic biological differences between male and female are are relatively clear um, to a lot of people, such is often not the case with this part that I'm about to point out now. When it comes to social consequences of biological sex, at the, very at the very least, such differences are fiercely contested today in our culture. And yet, scriptural revelation clearly teaches a social distinction between male and female within this first marriage. And you see it there in Genesis 2, in verses 18 through 25. This text is revealing, already there's a sexual complementarity between the two. We saw that in chapter 1. It's implied here again in chapter 2. But there's also what today people might call a gender complementarity embedded in God's good creation. And to understand the difference between these two, we have to think about those terms. Sometimes today when people are referring to sex, they're talking about a biological category. Gender is a modern term. It's not necessarily a biblical concept, but a modern term to refer to the social manifestation of biological sex. The spirit of the age is telling you that the relationship between what they call gender and sex is a purely conventional relationship. It's in no way essential. It's the spirit of the age is telling you that gender is a social construct, that it's a set of customs and behaviors that you learn, but which has no essential intrinsic relationship to biological sex. And they'll point to stereotypes and all these other things to, 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 to prove this. And this is why they argue That some people's gender identity doesn't match their bodily identity. Well, is this what Scripture teaches? Well, the answer is no. In verse 18, the word helper corresponding to Adam designates a social role that's been assigned to Eve within that first marriage there to Adam. It's a role that is inextricably linked to her biological sex. She can't swap roles with Adam. She can't say, you're the helper. No, God made a helper. He designated it to, to her. So he's to be, according to Genesis 2, he's to be the leader, the protector, and the provider within this first marriage covenant. If we have more time, I would bear that out from Genesis 2 and elsewhere. But um, his basic responsibility is to be the leader, the protector, and the provider. And she's to come alongside and to encourage and affirm that leadership And this is what's happening there with this first covenant of marriage. They're not only creational realities, but they're also commanded in Scripture. You think of 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, the head of Christ is God. And then in verse 8, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. You know what that is? That's just Paul reading Genesis. The woman was created for the man is Paul's way of recognizing that Genesis says that he made her to be a helper to the man in the assignment that God had given to him. Now some people will hear this and they'll object okay right whatever Denny Um, wait a minute those are covenantal obligations that apply narrowly to marriage not creational distinctions that apply to every single male and female regardless of their marital status to which I want to respond well yes and no. Okay, that's both correct and incorrect. Yes, these ideas of headship and helpership are covenantal obligations that apply narrowly to marriage. That's correct. It's another sermon for another time. No, it's not correct to deny creational distinctions that make male and female fitted for those covenantal roles should they ever enter into them. There are creational differences of temperament and disposition between little boys and little girls. Anybody ever notice that? You don't have to teach them to be that way. Those differences have social consequences. Those differences must be celebrated, not denigrated or ignored or dismissed as a social construct. Let me put it this way. The physical realities of our body generate social obligations that are reflected and actually commanded in in Scripture. So, for example, if we're in bed at night, it's 2 a.m., and I hear something that sounds like something breaking through the front door, do I say to my wife, why don't you go check that out while I wait here? It's ridiculous why don't I say that I don't say that because you know she's inept and can't do it I don't say I don't say that um, but because you all have an expectation of me she has an expectation of me my children have an expectation of me and guess what that expectation of who's going to do what in that situation is downstream from the natural realities that God created you know, my body, I went through male puberty, okay? You know what happens at male puberty? A lot of testosterone. You know what happens as a consequence of that? Thicker bone mass, bigger, bigger muscle mass, stronger, generally faster. That doesn't mean that all men are stronger than all women. It means if I take 100 men and 100 women at random and line them up across from each other, from strongest to weakest, every man is going to be standing across from a woman that he's stronger than. That's what it means. Why is that in the world? Because of the, God, the way God made our bodies. And they're directly downstream from the sexual differences within our bodies. And those differences mean, as the stronger person, I'm supposed to go down there and meet whatever's breaking through that front door. That's what it means. You say, well, you're just dealing in stereotypes. Am I really? I think I'm dealing in natural realities that generate real social consequences in the way we relate to each other. What does this mean? It means that God has so made the world that there's a normative holy connection between biological sex and what we view as gender roles, gender identity. Notice that the social roles of the first man and the woman in Genesis 2 are inextricably connected to their biological sex. The New Testament reveals that these roles are not merely descriptive for the first marriage but normative for every marriage. And so the social order of the first family even becomes the foundation for leadership norms within the Christian church. But all that is, is assuming a normative connection between biological sex and the, and the social callings that God has for that sex. It, it also presumes that a man understands himself to be a man and a woman understands herself to be a woman. So when somebody adopts a gender identity at odds with their bodily identity, they're tearing asunder something that God meant to be held together from his very creation design, that a male body would coincide with a male self-concept, that a female body would coincide with a female self-concept. That's how God created the first man and the first woman, that's how really he designed all of us to be. And even though in a fallen world... Some people really do feel that connection to be broken. They really do feel that, and it's sad. We still know that God aims to restore that connection in the new creation. Here's the thing. There's not going to be any transgender identities in the new creation. Men will know themselves as men, and women will know themselves as women, even though there's no marriage in the age to come, our Lord tells us. How do you know that? Because Jesus was a man when he was raised. And you and I are going to be raised in his likeness. That's how we know. So the distinction between male and female is biological. The distinction between male and female is social. And then this is the last thing. The distinction between male and female is good. Now, I want you to turn in your Bibles to the New Testament, to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And I want to direct your attention to a statement that Paul makes in those first few verses, but especially in verses 4 through 5. Paul is addressing a church in Ephesus that is dealing with false teachers, and among the things that they are teaching falsely is the idea that marriage is not good and people should abstain from marriage, okay? That's a part of the false teaching. And so here you have this false teaching, people saying apparently marriage is, you know, just stay away from marriage. And so Paul says in verse 4, well, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Now, where does Paul get the idea that everything created by God is good? Yeah, you're all saying it. Paul's just reading his Bible. He is just reading Genesis. And what does it say in Genesis? It says in Genesis that throughout the six days of creation, God sees that what he has made and he recognizes that it's good, and then he makes the male and the female, and he says that it's very good, all right? And so Paul's got false teachers on the one hand saying marriage bad, therefore, the male-female distinction would also be partaking of this in, in some sense, but marriage bad, false teachers saying this, Bible saying marriage good, well, who's right? Well, you know who Paul thinks is right. God's right. The false teachers are wrong. So what's going on here? Paul is saying something very important that you cannot miss. Paul is affirming that what was true about male and female design before the fall is still true after the fall. This means that even though God's good design in creation is marred by the fall and by sin, God's good design is not erased by the fall and by sin. You remember last night Nancy talking about the masterpiece painting. With kids, you know, marking over it in marker or something. The masterpiece is still there. Okay, it's not destroyed. So God's good design is marred by the fall. It's not erased by the fall. Now, what does that mean for us? It's a very practical implication here. What that means for us is that our appraisal of the difference between male and female distinction in this fallen world must be the same as God's appraisal of male and female distinction. If God says that it's good, we must not say or do anything that implies that it's bad. Everything created by God is good and is to be received as a gift from Him. That has very practical implications for how you and I are supposed to be dealing with neighbors And friends and family members who are reporting they're having gender-confused feelings along these lines. That means your counsel to a gender-confused child or adult must always be for what's good for them, for what leads to their flourishing in their life. And their good and their flourishing are defined by what God's word says, not by what LGBTQ propagandists are saying who are aiming to efface and destroy God's design through destructive hormone therapies and so-called sex change surgeries. We have to speak what's true and what's really for their good and not do what the propagandists are saying, which is not good for them. You are being held emotionally captive by people who are redefining love to mean unconditional affirmation. Whatever I want to do to myself, you must affirm or you don't love me. And yet that's not what the Bible says about love, is it? You know, some years ago, there was a medical doctor named uh, Dr. Michael Laidlaw. Um, He wrote a book about this, um, the, the lead character in this reality Television show program. I'm not even going to say the person's name because the lead person was a child at the time and was a minor child. So I'm not going to say the child's name. You would probably all recognize the the name if I said it. It was a very popular show. But Dr. Michael Laidlaw is a medical doctor, and he wrote a book about this child's experience. And um, this child was um, identifying as a transgender child from prepubescent all the way through growing up, and this reality show was following the life of this child. And in um, one section of the review that doctor, this medical doctor wrote, he talks about the so-called sex change surgery that this minor child was contemplating. Keep in mind that this child had already been treated with puberty blockers, so his growth had been stunted. He'd likely already been rendered infertile for life. Also, keep in mind, this child was suffering from depression when all of this was going on. Nevertheless, with the support of his parents and healthcare providers, he was exploring this life altering surgery. And Dr. Laidlaw, as I said, he's a medical doctor, wrote about the procedure that he was about to undergo. I'm going to read to you from this, but I'm going to edit it as I go because. I I don't want to be embarrassing, but I want you to listen to this. What type of surgical procedure is this child considering for the treatment of gender dysphoria? Typically, surgery turning a male into a trans female involves dissecting the male organ and turning the skin inside out and placing it into a surgically created cavity to create a false female organ. After surgery, a dilator has to be placed in this artificial female organ to keep it from collapsing. And the reason for that is because your body treats it as a wound, because it is. You're not becoming that other thing. You're creating a wound. But this child has a problem. Since he has um, a small child-sized male organ because of the puberty blockers, he does not have enough skin to line the new structure they're trying to form. Potential remedies include sewing in a section of intestine, along with the male organ skin to make the false female organ. In one episode, this child is actually offered two different surgeries, one to create the false female organ and another two months later to attempt to form the rest of it. The need for the two dangerous surgeries instead of one is directly related to the effect of puberty blockers." If you thought the spirit of Moloch died in the ancient Near East, you can think again. Here we have parents and healthcare providers prescribing the amputation and destruction of healthy body parts in a minor child in service of an ideology that's completely foreign to nature and to scriptural revelation. And we now know, at the time this was writing, written, we didn't know it, but those two surgeries did have to happen. Both surgeries happened. And they did them, doing so that it was under the belief that it was good for this child. Now you tell me what's good, to conform a troubled mind to a healthy body or to conform a healthy body to a troubled mind? Is this child's male body lying to him about who God designed him to be? Or is his mind lying to him about who God designed him to be? When parents in your community Come to you heartbroken, telling you in private that their child is experiencing gender confusion. Do you know what you're going to say to them? Are you going to have the clarity and the conviction to stand against the soul-destroying propaganda, telling them to block their child's puberty or even to put them under the knife? If you're going to be a faithful disciple of King Jesus you must have the clarity and conviction to stand in that moment and you do it because you love them and you want what's good for them and the bible says in 1 corinthians 11 uh, 13 6 that love always rejoices in the truth love is not unconditional affirmation love always rejoices in the truth And so if you love them and you love those parents, you're going to grieve with them. You will weep with them. You will hold their hands and pray for them. You will share the gospel with them and say that Jesus Christ was crucified and raised for sinners. Are you a sinner? Then this is for you. That's what you'll tell them. And then you are going to point them to the path of wholeness and healing, which means you're always going to encourage Such sufferers to resolve their conflict in a way that affirms and celebrates their biological sex, not in a way that attempts to destroy it. If ever there were a need for clarity and conviction on this question, it is right now. Because this is a challenge not merely for those experiencing transgender conflicts. It's a challenge for every single Christian trying to be faithful in the face of mounting external pressures. And sometimes, sadly, internal pressures within the church. We have got to bear faithful witness. Any one of you that has an HR department at your work right now is dealing with this. They are trying to get you to submit to speech codes to make you say lies. To make you say things that aren't true in the way that you speak. To conform to this. We can't participate in the lies if we're going to be faithful to Jesus. We have to speak the truth in love. And if you'll cave on this, you'll end up caving on everything. Remember, what we're facing is what Paul talks about in Romans 1 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There are people who are lost, just like you and I were, apart from grace. We're lost. We needed help. But by nature, we are spring loaded to sin, and we're spring loaded to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And there are people around us who are doing everything they can to suppress the truth of what God has revealed about sex and gender. They want to do what they want, and they're suppressing that, and they want you to participate in the suppression. But you can't. You must not. Not if you're going to love them, and not if you're going to walk with Jesus and follow Christ. You're going to have to be able to say to them, the distinction between male and female is a biological thing, according to the body's Organization for Reproduction. And you know what? That distinction is also social. God made us in a certain way with glorious callings on our lives as men and women. And that distinction is good. What God wants for you is good for you. It doesn't hurt you or harm you. It's good for you. You can trust him even when your feelings are lying to you. We have to be the people who are going to say that because guess what? We're running out of people who will say it. There's foolishness all around us and nobody will say what's common sense anymore. Did you know that there has been a 4,000% increase in adolescent young women? A 4,000% increase over the last 10 or 12 years of young women who are saying that they are either non-binary or transgender. 4,000% increase. When I first started talking about this, over a decade ago, this was mainly a thing that was happening with, with children. It was mainly a very small, tiny fraction of young boys. And now, all of a sudden, a 4,000% increase with adolescent girls who have no, no history of this in their lives. Just all of a sudden, as adolescent young girls, they're, they're confused about it. And they all have something in common. They're having body image problems. You think that's a new thing in the world? That's not a new thing in the world. You know what is a new thing in the world? An explanation for why they may feel uncomfortable with their body. And they go online and they get reinforced in these communities online who tell them, hey, you can be the special if you just realize maybe your reason you feel uncomfortable with your body is you're not really a girl, you're a boy. And now all of a sudden, instead of being the outcast, you're the special. You're this special thing that everybody celebrates and that everybody's going to affirm. And so a 4,000% increase and now you have these girls undergoing physical changes to their body, some of them threatening their own fertility, some of them doing these surgeries even. And now, we've had years of this, a lot of them are detransitioning and coming out of it. And guess what? You can't get the genie back into the bottle. You can't, some things can be reversed, but a lot of things can't be fixed. Who, who is there? I'm concerned about everybody. I'm really concerned about the kids. I'm just wondering, who's going to stand up for the kids if it's not us? We're running out of people. And J.K. Rowling can't do it by herself. <laughs> She's a secular person who's been pushing back a little bit. But we are the ones who have the truth. And we know what it means to love as we have been loved. And so we have to bear witness. Father, I pray for your people. I don't know what's going on in this room. You do. You know the needs that need to be met. And Father, if I said anything that was not helpful, help them to all forget it. But whatever was true and consistent with your word, I pray that you would plant that deeply in the hearts of your people. And I pray that it would bear fruit that will last. I pray for people whose spines need to be stiffened in the face of error that you will give them conviction and clarity. I pray for people who are pugnacious, who need to learn how to love and to be patient and forbear. I pray that you would do that within them. Father, meet the needs in the hearts of your people. Make us more like Jesus. Help us to bear witness to what's true. And Father, if there's anybody here who's visiting, who doesn't know you, they're not a Christian at all. Lord, I pray that you would awaken in them their need for a Savior. Lord, help them to know that they're a sinner, a great sinner, but Jesus is an even greater Savior. And he was crucified on a Roman cross and raised three days later to save sinners. And that if they would just but believe, repent of their sin and believe, they could be saved. Father, would you do that for anybody who's here in that situation? Father, we trust you that your word will not return void. Do your work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.